0: has indeed made the sure foundation. you can build your life on him. you can stake your eternity on him as well in Jesus' name, our great cornerstone and foundation, the rock of our lives. My dear friends, I wonder if any of you uh, remember the name Dr. D James Kennedy if you 're thirty or younger, you probably don't. He died in two thousand and seven. Uh, so he's getting to be uh, have a little little bit of cobwebs on him because he's been off the scene for a while. But if you're older than 30, you probably heard his name. And if you're older than 50, you probably used to watch his TV show. He was a, a monster in the Christian TV world. In fact, depending on whom you ask, probably one of the top three religious Christian broadcasters of all time. And his show, The Coral Ridge Hour, was watched very widely. Uh, He was very famous, had built a a big Presbyterian church in Fort Lauderdale, uh, north of Miami, about a half an hour's drive north of Miami. It was called the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. They claimed at one time at their high water mark, probably 10,000 members. They had a prep school there. He even planted a seminary there. Uh, He built a uh, Presbyterian seminary across the street from this enormous church, filmed the TV show in the church, and uh, back when Time of Grace was first starting, we actually went there to visit the TV headquarters and saw their em- enormous studio and the millions of dollars worth of technical stuff and the loading docks where they'd roll up the semis. You know, like ever watch on uh, watching football on TV and once in a while the cutaway to the sound truck, there's a huge semi outside the stadium, uh, you know, with all the gear in it. They had they had a sound semi and the loading dock where you could roll it up and everything had its uh, sockets and gates and stuff where you could like hook everything up. And we were sitting there thinking, I wonder if we can start broadcasting from our, our little church here on the in the central city of Milwaukee. And I felt like the Wright brothers standing inside a Boeing uh, hangar where they're making their jumbo jets. i uh, just wondering, uh, Are we ever going to be this cool? Probably can never be this cool. Well, he was cool until he wasn't. Um, Death has a way of kind of ending everybody's gig, doesn't it? 2007, he had a heart attack on December, and the next month he was gone. Uh, Things have shrunk down considerably because he himself was such a driver. But I want to just kind of honor his name a little bit, not for how big a congregation he built or for his amazing seminary that he planted for training pastors or for his TV ministry, but for his book, Evangelism Explosion. Uh, you got to be kind of a church nerd even to know about that. Uh, probably most of you have never heard of it. It was written in the 70s and he, D. James Kennedy, was an evangelism fanatic When he got really, really big time, he spent his time on the jets back and forth to Washington and hobnobbed with the big people. But back in the day, when he was building his church, he didn't just wait for people to show up. He made it a key part of that congregation that every member was viewed as an evangelist. And they took all of their members through evangelism training. And I think that's one of the accelerators for their amazing growth. And that book, Evangelism Explosion, was a way to lay out their training method. And thousands of other congregations around the country bought that book for their own evangelism committees, read it through, tried to digest it, and do some of his cool things. So I'm going to cut to the chase. For me, the coolest thing that he did was helped lay people who are not you know, trained as religious talkers, to boil their message down and and to steer the conversation with two key diagnostic questions. And if you're a church nerd, you've heard of the Kennedy questions. Probably most of the rest of you never heard of the Kennedy questions. But I'm going to lay them out for you right now. And I encourage you to use them because they're awesome. I've used them myself quite a bit. The first one is, when you want to really get down to it with a neighbor of yours, a coworker, a friend, whenever you're having a conversation and the person's open to a little steering or you think this might be my chance, ask two questions. Number one, when you die, what's going to happen to you next? So I'll use that on you right now. When you die, what's going to happen to you? And then theoretically, you'll come up with an answer. And the second follow-up question is, how do you know that? So first, what's the, the center of the content of your faith? And secondly, what's the authority behind it to give you the confidence to bet your eternity on it? Content and authority. Content and authority. That's what I'm talking to you about today on this Reformation Day. It is very, very hard to keep your head straight in the craziness of our culture. You and I are stuck with having to live in the US. and in a world in a time of convulsions and change, when the old order of things, where there was at least in, at least in the U.S, was kind of an assumption of Christianity, uh, an assumption that good people should really be going to church and an assumption that people would make a stab at reading their Bibles now and again, and an assumption that this was a Christian nation, that is all gone. I'm not so sure how strongly it ever was here, but man, I'm telling you now, it is solid gone. And everybody and his uncle has got opinions about the answers to the Kennedy questions. I think answer number one, this is the down escalator you got to get on and try to climb up. This is what you're up against in the world around you. Number one is apathy. Who's got time for that? People just aren't interested in that question. I'll worry about that later. They don't care about that question. They're too busy having fun, too busy being young. When you're young, you think you're bulletproof and immortal. You just don't worry about that stuff. It's one of the reasons why people put off and hate talking about making a will. They just don't want to think about that stuff. That's icky stuff. Ah, will, and I got to think about dying. What a mess. Forget it. Push it off. It may also be that if somebody's really down at the lower levels of ec- economic society, the, the struggle just to survive is so exhausting and takes so much starch out of you. You got no, you are, you're trying to get through today. I, don't, I can't worry about what's going to happen 50 years from now. I've I got to struggle just to try to eat something today. How am I going to pay those bills? I'm terrified of getting evicted. When you're terrified of getting evicted, it's hard to have a calm conversation about long-range planning, isn't it? So apathy, I think, is one. Another one are atheists who are not huge numerically, but their words are very powerful In America today and they are listened to by a lot of people. Here's an example of atheistic thought. If you think uh, that there is zero scientific evidence for the existence of God, you're completely uninterested in any talk about judgment, uh, justification, heaven and hell. Those are all unprovable uh, myths that uh, the superstitious and small-minded people believe. Atheists are was big on science if you ask them well what is your source of authority they will always say science and and the the kinder and gentler atheists who are not so militaristic about it call themselves agnostics they will they will say well I'm open to persuasion if God would ever feel like showing up I might believe in him or her or it or whatever Uh, but in the absence of evidence I guess I uh, I'm having an open mind. There might be nobody there. As far as, I'm, as far as I can tell, there might be nobody at the switch. Nobody's at the controls. We're just drifting. We're just uh, making it out as, as we go along, like Indiana Jones said. I'm uh, just making it up as we go along. Here's, uh, here's what an atheist would say. This is from Atlantic Monthly. This woman writes, I've always felt that when I die, I'm dead and gone. My conscious life will end, my interactions with others will end, and I will simply be, G-O-N-E, gone. I don't know what causes consciousness, or if you want to call it spirit, call it soul, I don't mean to pick sides with my words, but I expect that it will end. My afterlife will only exist in the memories of those I knew who loved me, those who carry me on in their hearts. As For me, I myself will cease to exist. Bertrand Russell, a great British philosopher, simply said, When I die, I rot. You have friends who have that point of view. You know people like that. You work with them, you live around them, you're driving past them every day. That is their point of view. So we got apathy and atheism for now. Uh, here's what else kind of is a drag on you, and I'll partly blame this on the Beatles, because back in the 60s, they got this fascination with Eastern religions, Hinduism especially. George Harrison, you know, had, when, he would, when he died, he had his, his body cremated and scattered his ashes on the Ganges because he figured that was going to help his karma in eternal life. Hindus, many of them, believe in reincarnation. It's sort of like uh, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray over and over again. And there's a certain uh, romantic logic behind that, right? Who doesn't want a, a mulligan, a life mulligan, Last time I played golf, I needed three mulligans. I didn't, there was, we were playing for money and I had no bragging rights. I was just trying to survive a tough course on a cold and windy day. Three mulligans. I love mulligans. And I love even more than, I love playing with somebody who will let me take mulligans. And I could pretend that that first shot never happened. Didn't happen. First shot did not happen. What, what's not to like about mulligan? You can go over and do it again. Like, if I don't get my life right the first time, if I screw everything up, well, I'll just give it another shot. I may come back as a lower order of creature, but once I start figuring it out, I'll work my way through, climb my way up. Unfortunately, the ultimate payoff at the end, if you achieve perfection in, the, in that system, you achieve nirvana. That means you disintegrate. It means you cease individual consciousness. So the winning sounds like losing to me. Like you, like you, you disappear. Like that's that's supposedly winning, and you, you become part of the the universe's energy, and your own individual mind ceases to happen. Now you might think, well, what what good is? those ideas going to have in the U.S. Do you know that something like 40% of Americans seriously believe in reincarnation? Do you know even 30% of Christians believe in reincarnation? What? Yes, that's the stream you're swimming in, trying to keep your thinking straight. I'd, I'd be scared even to wonder if any of you are convinced you're coming back as somebody else in the next life, and you're hoping to updo an upgrade, you're going to come back a lot better looking and a lot richer and a lot more powerful. You're going to come back born into a much more wealthy family. As your payoff for all the stuff you've had to endure in this life, like you, you get a promotion when you come back and get to do it again. Do any of you believe of that stuff? It's all around you. And people will say that stuff and expect you to nod and agree. A fourth one is people who admit that there's a little bit of Christianity in their thinking, they actually will admit the presence of heaven. Yeah, okay, there is a heaven. But then they construct a wishful scenario of the type of world they think ought to exist in eternity. And that's, they base it on a few ideas like, well, God is kind and good and he loves everybody, right? God is also all-powerful, therefore, he could not possibly accept a situation where one of his creatures would end up in damnation. Ain't going to happen. Everybody's in. So all of the warnings and all the threats, that just is blather. Everybody wins. It's sort of like Santa Claus. God is Santa Claus. You know how the poem, T'was the Night Before Christmas, threatens you that uh, Santa Claus is looking to see if you're naughty or nice? But it turns out to be a scam because you might have been a total jerk through the whole whole month of December, but Christmas pays off anyway. And the kids figure out, by the time they're like in primary school, they're figuring it out. It's a scam. There's going to be no coal in my stocking. I'm getting presents regardless of how I act. It's a scam. And people are calling God's bluff too. It's a scam. We're all going to get our piece of pie in the sky by and by. And that's called universalism. And the universalist, universalism is all over the place. A loving God could never build a permanent barbecue pit called hell where people get thrown in. At worst, even if there was a hell, and even if you spend 90, if you live to be 90 and spend 90 years rebelling against him, then your maximum penalty ought to be what? 90 years. What's this eternity for 90 years of sinning? That is way disproportionate. So they construct what they think would be a just system. And that's heaven for everybody. Well, it's a very pleasing sort of scenario, isn't it? I wonder how many of you believe. I wonder how many of you are universalists. Those are the waters we have to swim in. What influences like that have gotten into your head? Here's a fifth, and that is what I'm going to call the works racket. And that is, it's even a little step closer to true Christianity. Yes, there's a heaven, and yes, there is a hell. And yes, we have a Savior Jesus, a sort of a half-Savior. You know what I mean by a a half-a-Savior? He sort of forgives you, but he only comes halfway. Now, you got to go the other half. Here's an example of halfway. Uh, This is none other than Muhammad Ali, who uh, converted. I don't know how Christian he was beforehand, but he converted to Islam. And in 2002, there was a magazine article uh, where he was interviewed, and he uh, began to explain his religious views. So he said, What is they said to him, Ali, what does your faith mean to you? And he said, It's a ticket to heaven. Now, you know, if I said to you, talk to me about your faith, and you would say it's my ticket to heaven, I might be excited to hear you say that, because there's a like a good way to think about that. But here's Ali took all my joy away by the by how he went on. It's a ticket to heaven, by which he means one day we're all gonna die. And God's going to judge us, right, our good and bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Help somebody through charity, he says, because when you do, it's being recorded. Whoa. Now, see, there's some logic behind that, right? Because the world you live in, in the waters you swim around in every day, are all about rewarding your effort. If you work in a business in some kind of shop, if you produce patterns in a pattern shop or you do graphic design, you only get paid when work goes out the door. Am I right about that? So we're used to that concept. Why would that not leach into our religious thinking? You only, there's only a payout when you have done what you should. Now, that assumes that there's some big scales here and that you got to keep throwing good stuff on this side so that it outweighs this site When my grandmother back in the 1980s was getting elderly, um, she decided I better not drive anymore. Uh, after she was in a car accident, she thought that's it for me. I don't. I should not be on the road. So she gave up her car keys. Her neighbor, Mrs. Cooley, used to pick her up and take her to church. Even though Mrs. Cooley wasn't a member of her church, she would drop her off. Uh, every morning would get up a little earlier and And my grandmother was very appreciative of that. She loved Mrs. Cooley and said, I can't believe you're doing this for me. This is so nice of you. Why are you doing this? And Mrs. Cooley said, I like to think that every good deed I do, I take one step closer to heaven. That's that's the works gig. And man, it has a certain logic and appeal, doesn't it? Because all of us love control. We like to control things, including our relationships. Kids like to control their environment so they learn slowly how to work their parents. Parents try to control the kids so they work on all their strategies to get the kids to do what they want. Do you think we're above trying to manipulate God to get him to do what we want? So this is a very appealing racket on a a very basic sense in that it gives you the illusion, and it's nothing more than an illusion, that by what you do, You can get God to like you. Now that is a, like all of these things have their own logic behind them, don't they? You can tell the appeal behind all of them. The appeal behind pushing it off. Who wants to think about icky things like hell and damnation? The appeal of just being completely worldly and not even, and and just thinking I'm too confused by all this God stuff. Uh, I'm just going to act. I'm just going to live for this life. Or the appeal of reincarnation. I'll, I'll, I'll just have a do-over. If I screw up this time, I'll just do it better next time in my n- next life. There's an appeal to that, to universalism. God's going to let everybody in. Hey, heaven for everybody. There's an appeal to do it yourself because you think I can, I can tip the balance in my favor just by my own effort. The problem is, You're making that up. There is absolutely no source with God's authority behind it that says any of that is true. And secondly, you have no idea how your accounts look. The church of the Middle Ages into which Martin Luther was born was big into the works justification. And people were taught they could never be confident or secure of their salvation. And see, that's a great manipulation technique because it means people like me who are pastors get tremendous power over other people. Who doesn't want power over other people? Kept people scared and nervous about their destiny. Makes them pliable and obedient because the church is the broker of the good news of, of the assurance of forgiveness. They're the controllers of the sacraments. And they also are the inventors of a religious system, which, for instance, invented purgatory, which is the ultimate get-out-of-free card. Because if if you tried your best and your scales were unbalanced, they kind of had Muhammad Ali thinking that you have to add now a certain number of works to get the to tilt in your favor. If you did not do enough, you they, they laid out for you an elaborate set of rituals you could attend by attending masses oftener and oftener. You can go on pilgrimages and visit holy places. You can donate money to have masses said in your honor after you're dead. You can endow the saying of masses with uh, with building up an endowment fund, and that will help pray you into heaven. Uh, So it's like it brings the mulligans in. Like if, if you're Uh, If you're not good enough for heaven, you can go into purgatory. You can earn your way out by roasting for enough years in a temporary hell. And after you've suffered enough, you can essentially cleanse yourself of the rest of your sins and then move on up. They even invented a system where certain people who were called saints were so good, their surplus of merits could be borrowed and add it to your account. So that's that's what led to the ferocious interest in praying to saints. You, it's called the treasury of merits. You could borrow from their accounts and load up on yours if you're fearful that your scales, your good work scale, is way too high. You gotta, gotta load her down to get her like this. And Martin Luther bought into all of that, and he was miserable because he was expecting, I am such a sinful jerk, I am expecting the minute I die, God's going to howl curses at me and throw me from his presence. I'm such a disappointment to my God. And out of mercy and kindness, God let his mind open up and see what the real situation was. And I want to celebrate that with you today. Here's just a little celebration of how we know that from 2 Peter chapter 1. You can look this up in your Bible if you want to follow along with me and know where to go to savor this later. Peter writes to the Christians in Northern Asia Minor, I'll always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory. All of them, he's afraid you're struggling with amnesia. You knew the stuff the first time, but you've forgotten it. I want you to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. See, Satan, it's not just in the 21st century when Satan is giving people all kinds of crazy myths to follow. That was going on 2,000 years ago at at, uh, Peter's time as well, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they saw the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We also were earwitnesses. We heard the voice that came from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we have as something even more certain the word of the prophets. And you will do well to pay attention to it. So it's like a light shining in a dark place. If there's confusion in your mind, if you have uncertainty, if you're groping for answers as to the answer to the Kennedy questions, what happens next when I die and how do I know that? Here's how the lights go on. Pay attention to the word of God until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's a little metaphor for coming to faith in a Savior who has chosen to love you objectively. And without questions. That means he went first and did it all. God's grace, you are saved by grace that has none of your efforts in it. The scales have already permanently clunked down to not guilty by Christ's work. His good deeds are on your account and through faith in him you may claim it all. That was a mind-blowing Revelation to Martin Luther, he was a church boy all his life and nobody ever told him that that's what the Bible said. It blew his skull apart. Like, what? I've been, what a sucker I've been. And it made him love Jesus all the more because Jesus didn't just come halfway. He came all the way and lifted us up. And through our faith in him, all our evil is forgiven. And Christ's good deeds make our good deeds look good to God. He not only justified you and wiped away your sins, he also justifies your feeble good deeds so that everything you do looks good to God now. Through faith, you may claim that. Amazing. Now, how do you know that? That's the content. What's the authority? Peter says, above all, you must understand, no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. In other words, the Bible is the very words of God, happen to use human penmanship. But the authority of Scripture is how you can know, not guess, not wish, not forced to design your own scenario, not drift around with the crazy ideas and currents flowing through our society today, but you can know how you stand. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But these men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here is how you can know what's going to happen to you next. For Christ's work is done. His his death is real. His blood was shed and it was splattered on you. Through the word, the Spirit has gotten into your brain and your heart. And like the scripture says, the morning star has arisen. The lights are on in the attic. And it's his gift to you through faith. The good things you do, which you do, are no longer to get God to like you. But they're simply a life of gratitude because he has already decided to like you. This is amazing. When you've got to answer the Kennedy questions, just sing a little song you learned in Sunday school. You want to sing it with me? Jesus loves me. This I know for the. that if you say yes, you are an heir. That's better. You are an heir of the Reformation. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.